Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray steering the ship through stormy waters, both figuratively and literally. Parts of eastern Australia once again being hammered by rain and flooding. While rising waters continue to swamp the top echelons of men's professional golf, the news coming at such a rapid pace these last couple of weeks, it's getting hard to keep up with. All this is, of course, happening against the backdrop of, and frankly distracting from, what should be one of the game's great joys, an Open Championship at the old course. Before that, we'll have an historic Scottish Open, co-sanctioned between the PGA and European Tours for the first time. But before even that, there's episode 112 of the Good Good Golf Podcast with a special guest to introduce. We'll come to our guest, Hannah Holden, from the National Club Golfer website in just a moment. But first, when you think Good Good, you think Adrian Logue. Oh, dear. And he's okay. here with me in the studio. Logue, are you in the can't-get-enough-of-live-what's-going-to-happen-next camp, <laughs> or are you in the seemingly-growing... Why does everyone keep banging on about this stuff? It's boring, camp. Uh, no, I, I, whether you like live or not, it's very interesting stuff. It's it's something to talk about every week. I really actually I'm actually really enjoying it. <laughs> Your text messages to me would suggest that that is in fact <laughs> true. I'm someone in that camp as well. It's probably the biggest thing I can it's, remember ever happening yeah, to golf. It's exciting. It's a really uh, as well, a business and an industry. Exciting from a topic of conversation point of view. Indeed. Enough out of us. Let's meet our guest this week. Golf writer from the UK that we've been wanting to get on the show for some time. An architect by trade whose career took an unusual, I'm going to say left-hand turn, but it may not have been left. Uh, Hannah Holden, she's a plus three marker on the golf course and is fast establishing herself as equally handy in the golf coverage caper. Hannah, welcome. How did you go from designing buildings to test driving golf equipment, which I originally was going to say from drawing buildings to drawing drives, but even I thought that was too corny, but I still wanted to get it out there. (laughs) That would have been so good. Well, I think I made the mistake as a golfer of um, picking to work at an architect's office across the road from a driving range and uh, spending most of my lunch breaks there and thinking, I think I'd rather work in golf um, than architecture. Uh, I knew I didn't want to turn professional, um, so looking for something in where I could stay amateur and still get involved and the golf world. And I kind of just fell into it really from my playing background. My SNC coach at the time had links to national club golfer. And here we are. Well, nearly four years later now. Let's let's back up a bit. Lots and lots of people who play this game recreationally will be choking on their coffee or beer, depending on what time of day they're listening, that you could be good enough to consider turning professional and not do it. Why not? Just the expense. I mean, especially in Europe, if you want to play L.E.T., you've got to travel a lot and it is seriously expensive. I mean, I just couldn't even fathom the amount of money I would need to be able to do that. It just wouldn't be possible. And I knew I didn't really want to be a club pro because I play golf because I love to play golf. And I know a lot of pros at clubs who just lose that ability to play because they're so busy working at a golf club. So. Yeah, those are the two options and neither kind of are really what I wanted to do. Let's jump straight into some gender politics. Had you been a bloke, might that have been a different set of decisions? Probably, yeah. (laughs) But uh, unfortunately, I'm not. So I think it's a a very in-depth discussion. It's Mm a very hard one to unpick, but I think definitely would have been different if I was a boy, which is sad. Um, I do quite a lot of work now with the England like under 18 development squads and I've worked with both boys and girls squads, mixed squads over the past kind of five years of doing that. And 
I think the biggest thing I see even from kind of grassroots level is the difference of opinion and kind of value that parents hold on sport. You can see when parents rock up with their sons to something, it's we're almost training someone for a career. Whereas when they bring their daughter, it's like, this is a hobby, like, you know, this is on side of the school. There's other things that are more important. And I almost think the issue starts at that level because parents don't see women making enough money playing sport. They don't take it seriously enough with their kids. So you've got like these two ends of extremes and how do you kind of fix both of them? It's a really interesting and hard discussion, I think. It's circular, isn't it? Because that's perfectly legitimate thing for parents to think because it's the reality that you lived. Yeah, exactly. But I think it almost... It's hard to know which end needs to change first. I think that's where the discussion always ends up. You know, people say, well, we can't put it more on TV because people don't watch it, but people don't watch it because, you know, there was a time when women's sport was banned and people didn't view sport as a thing that was for women. And as much as people like to kind of think that mindset doesn't still exist, it does. Mm -hmm. Um, so for me personally, I think someone has to take the hit and it has to be more in media and more coverage, even if that's costing someone somewhere for that mindset to change at the bottom end because it's it's not going to shift the other way around. Do people not watch women's golf because they don't like women's golf logo because it's not on to watch? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> sure. I think there was literally 12 hours of coverage of the women's PGA. And I think I watched more than that. In one day of the men's, two hundred and absolute disgrace, wasn't it? Two hundred and fifty hours. The PGA men's coverage got the PGA themselves were trumpeting. That was the coverage that was going to be across digital, broadcast, and social. Two hundred and fifty hours, twelve hours of broadcast television, and that was it for the women's. Which is doesn't matter how you like to cut it. You can be on either side of the argument, but that's pretty obvious there. That I always maintain for a non-golfer looking at those two forms of golf on the screen, can they tell the difference at all? Like it, it looks like exactly the same product to them, I'm sure. So like that I think that's and it's it's not one hundred percent like if it was on more, more people would No, watch no, no, it. that's right. It's not that simple. It's not that simple. But it not being on is fairly simple as to not being able to watch it. That's right. If it was on, you would get more people watching. Um because uh, and it would attract more people to golf and uh as Hannah was just saying You've got to see it to be it, um, and uh, you've got to have those role models that you can um, that that are highly visible, more highly visible. And it's up to news coverage and golf media to to make them more visible because they're doing the job. They're they're out there winning tournaments and doing exactly the same job actually yeah, <laughs> as the men. Yeah, that's right. Um, from a training point of view and everything, so there's this horrendous pain equality, but. Um, for exactly the same work. I, I, I actually can't get past that. They're doing exactly the same work, but let's move on from that for a sec. Um, but, yeah, not getting the coverage, but then that next generation, I think that's what compounds that position of it being um, considered a, it's a, it's something that girls do in addition to school. It's a hobby or something. That's it's a not, deeper problem than yeah, just golf or it's not just a sport, serious, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, not a serious thing. So. Hannah, touched on this uh, by the way you're the third hannah we've had on the podcast in very recent <laughs> we hannah green oh hannah green might have been it was a fair was i see yeah. golf hannah brown uh who's a tremendous follower on you're the first one who's not a color yeah the first <laughs> non <laughs> um so we'll have to go through there's more car manufacturer hannah's 
out of order. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, uh, Most of what you write on National Club Golfer is equipment related and none of this gender stuff. It's not. It's not a part of that most of your writing on it's all equipment and it's very gender neutral, which I think is fantastic that you can have that role there. Um, first of all, is that important to you? But then also have the opportunity to do uh, the odd piece like you did for the Lynn Grant um, in the wake of Lynn Grant's win. You, you put up a fantastic piece, which we'll get into a little bit as well. But um, yeah, it's I'm interested to know a bit more about your focus on equipment and uh, just, you know, that's your everyday stuff and you're just employed like a like a normal writer to do that stuff. Yes. Yeah, so I think when I first interviewed for the job, like it was really important to me that when I was younger, I hadn't seen like a woman doing that role. And for me, I wanted like the wider golfing community to think like some, a woman can do that. Um because when I look at equipment, I don't think like it should be termed under men's and women's because generally I think how you strike the ball and your club speed is a bigger influence on what equipment you should use than if you're a man or a woman. I mean, if you look at typical women's golf sets, it's not something you would use on, see a women's tour pro use, for example, whereas a lot of men's sets are what you would see a male tour pro use. So for me, being able to test all equipment and show people that I, as a female, can use these clubs and they're not really just for men um, is a big thing. But also just that when people are watching our reviews and seeing our equipment reviews, they're being influenced by a female golfer and seeing that there are female golfers who can play golf um, is a big thing. But I came more into the equipment just from my playing side um, I knew a lot about equipment from that. I'd been through a lot of fitting processes. So I had more knowledge in that side um, than I necessarily did in other areas. But yeah, I really enjoy it. It gives you so many opportunities um, in different areas. And I also really like the fact that it frees me up to write about other topics when they come up um, because it's something like I'm very passionate about. And I hope that kind of comes across in some of the pieces I've written recently. And this podcast is a little bit like a an ageing rockers concert. We've got all the old hits that we like to bring out. So I'm going to give you a list and you get to choose what we talk about next. Well, we can talk about the media and its role in all this. We've touched on that a little bit with the coverage. Uh, we can talk about public golf and its role in the broader game. I'm not sure what your background is or where you started golf, but access to golf. Lots of arguments here in Australia about that sort of stuff. We've done a bit of the gender stuff, but I am interested to explore further the Lynn Grant piece you wrote because it was actually researched as opposed to just comment piece, which was what most of us wrote, myself included, and we spoke a fair bit about it on the podcast here. Uh, what else are we doing here, Logue? What's another one of our favourites? Architecture, golf course architecture, not buildings. You'll lose us pretty quickly if you go on buildings, although Logue's <laughs> probably into it. But golf course architecture, is that an area of interest? Pick a topic out of all of that and we'll explore it. Definitely be interested to talk about the uh, Lynn Grant stuff. And also, I think from my point of view in equipment, there's a story balancing kind of course architecture and the distance debate as well and all the stuff the R&A are doing there. You've just booked yourself a return visit. Go. <laughs> what did you want to say about Lynn Grant? <laughs> you, you fit it in nicely. Tell us first about Lynn Grant and the, uh, the equipment thing that you're mentioning. Uh, yeah, so Lynn Grant was definitely very interesting as a woman seeing the comments on social media frustrating 
Um, for people who haven't read my piece, I basically went into the stats of how far um, women pros hit it versus male pros, look at the statistical percentage different, and then looked at how that actually worked out on the golf course. So if the lengths of the holes were fair in the loosest terms, people kind of seem to use the term that it wasn't a fair setup. Um, and it basically showed that both courses were exactly 15% difference, which is what the PJ top, what the European tour were trying to set up with that. And it also showed that pretty much on every hole, the players had the same clubs in. So I think what a lot of people don't understand about these mixed events where we have different teases, the idea isn't that you tee off different tees and then your golf ball ends up in the same place in the fairway from that because that wouldn't work because a male pro would be hitting a lot shorter clubbing. They're going to have a lot more control with that. So the idea is that if I hit a driver off the tee and a male pro hits the driver off the tee, we both end up with a seven iron. So inherently the woman has to hit it past the man with their drive, <laughs> which a lot of people didn't really seem to understand. Um, but hopefully that cleared up quite a bit of that. <laughs> Come yeah. on, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a done, well, it's done. Me, the conversation yeah, the, the whole debate's over now is there some deliberate <laughs> ignorance in there, do you reckon like what Hannah's talking about people say oh, they'll hit it is there some deliberate ignorance about some of that do you think uh, there's a lot of shooting off opinions without a lot of thought mm. I think the, and there was a number there's a this fantastic graphic that um, leads the story with uh, a, a photo of Lynn Grant and a bunch of very relatable tweets or like uh these tweets so uh, usually the themes are along the lines of oh it's not a legitimate win because she didn't play from the same tees or um she'd struggle to break par from the men's tees (laughs) that's got to be so lynn grant's won this scandinavian mixed by nine shots over mark warren was the next nearest competitor um but you know actually if you go down the leaderboard like, and I, this is an observation I think we've made about the mixed events that we've run here as well, is that you do sometimes get, like we had Hannah Green win a four-round mixed event here in Australia, um, you, you do get some standout performances that people tend to look at and assume that the whole field had some sort of advantage. And But if you go down the leaderboard, I, I don't know if you, you didn't actually cover this in the article, Hannah, but I, I was wondering whether you might have looked into it, the actual mix of men and women towards the top half of the leaderboard wasn't very equitable. Like it was mostly dominated by men. Um, so we just had, it makes, I think, Lynn Grant's performance even more of a standout. I agree. Um, what a so, goal swing, what a, what a player. What a, yeah. Uh, but the advantages that she has, Rod, she's got, she's playing off these forward tees. She's, uh, as a junior golfer, no doubt she had incredible funding, Hannah. She must have been. <laughs> she, she bought a golf game. <laughs> Haven't we all tried to do that? The, the amount of attention junior girl golfers get compared to boy golfers. I'll she get, must have. Uh, I'll get you to answer some of what Logue said there, Hannah. But broadly speaking, do you think these mixed events where men and women play directly against each other for the same purse, do they achieve the goal I suspect they're trying to achieve? I find them problematic for some of the reasons that we've just discussed. It, it, if you suggested playing a bunch of juniors against a bunch of tour pros, talented juniors, you'd say, well, that's crazy, you can't set up the course. And I know that what the, the, the mathematical points you made about the way the course was set up and the differences in hitting distances, 
doesn't really account completely for golf, does it? Not all 400-yard par fours are created equal. Not all seven-nine shots are created equal. I always felt, I've always felt this format is problematic. I think the Vic Open format for me works much better where you have two separate events but played concurrently. What are your thoughts on that? Is there a danger that these events do some damage in the area that they're trying to actually promote? I don't think so because even, say, in this case where Lynn won and a lot of people don't like it, it's still got a lot of media coverage. Like one of the biggest issues with women's sport is media just don't cover it enough. I think the stat I read was like 40% of professional sportsmen are women and like 0.4% of coverage of the media is for them. So like, even if this, uh, I don't, I agree with you that you're never going to get something that's perfect because it's just too hard. And when you think of the width of a field of golf, like everyone is different and everyone hits it different. So it's never going to be perfect, but this is given such an opportunity for people to watch the women when they normally wouldn't. Um, and just for them to get more media coverage. And I don't think it should be something that happens every week. I think they should be kind of a couple of events that are like that. And I also think it would be great to have a mix where men and women are playing at the same time, but possibly for different tournaments. But just because something's not going to be perfect in the outcome for everyone doesn't mean it's not having benefit in other areas because <laughs> it's silly to say, but sometimes even negative press is better than no press and because no press. people are actually get being influenced and seeing people because of it. I think there's a role for both types of events. The, the, the Vic Open's never going to be uh, a combined event in, in like you know the, for the same trophy because they're not going to unify the trophies. No, like that. And the two existing trophies already. Yeah, the two existing that, yeah. trophies. It doesn't seem like, like that. That just doesn't seem like something that's ever going to happen for the Australian Open or something. For instance, they're not going to they're, they're not going to unify the trophies because it kind of I don't know in some weird way that I think that lessens the past winners for both trophies mm-hmm. in a way. So, you know, stage them as separate events. But these these things can be can exist alongside that because they're their own thing and they're, they've been created for their own history and, and they'll create their own history. And Going back to our list of hits, one of them is the boring week-in, week-out slog of 72-hole stroke play. It certainly breaks that up, doesn't it? It's, a, it's an innovative format that's interesting to watch whether, you, whether you're for it or... or uh, or against it. The nine shots thing, I think, to me, was the most extraordinary thing about that, how anybody could suggest that the course may have been nine shots easier falling around over. That's just a staggeringly stupid thing to say. One of the interesting things in Hannah's article was how some holes did advantage the men mm-hmm. and some holes did advantage the mm. women, um, but it balanced it out because you just can't, like you were saying, Rod, every 400-metre par four is not the same. can't be treated the same, and so there's going to be inequity on some holes, but... Surprise! Like eight of the holes statistically came out exactly the same. I think Hannah is that right? And then the other ones were pretty evenly split. Overall, there was a slight advantage to the men actually, based on the lengths of club that they're hitting into the greens. But it worked out very well. Yeah. And I mean, that's literally just looking at numbers. It's yeah. for before you even think of things like the fact that the 
swinging it quicker they're getting more spin stuff like that dispersion differences someone was like maybe they should make bring the rough in so the fairways are narrow where the women are pitching it to match the dispersion and i was like really someone someone replied to me saying they should have two holes on every green and the women's should be half the size to match <laughs> the fact that they have a small dispersion and i was like what <laughs> like that doesn't even make any sense relative to dispersion. Like, uh, oh, that's so I was funny. going to say if you follow that to its logical conclusion, but there is no logic to follow, is there? So no. there's clearly no conclusion. I know. And that's, uh, Ma- you want to make it more fair, but you want everyone yeah. to put to different pin positions on every hole, to different holes. I was like, no. Uh, they'll let them, make them play different weeks, Hannah, some in summer and some in winter. That'll fix that. Then it'll, then it'll be fair. I, I imagine you experienced the same thing. Meg McLaren once showed me her phone the screenshots she'd taken of various replies she got. What was the response, some of the responses you got to the piece that you wrote? This is unacceptable. If people are free to disagree about the format and whether it's fair and all of those things, there's legitimate cases. But I would imagine you would have got some stuff that was particularly unsavoury in responses. And this does seem to be a particularly women's issue on social media or an issue for women, I should say. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily too bad on this piece because I think a lot of it was kind of statistical based and people were giving their opinion about a tournament rather than necessarily sending stuff at me. But, I mean, I did one last week, maybe the week before, about um, live and human rights and looking at America and abortion rules. And I literally had people, like, seeking out my personal Instagram account, sending me DMs saying, like, I should have been aborted and all sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's... (laughs) I get some bad messages sometimes, but I just take it on the chin and think, you know, the wider good, like just block them, delete them, get on with it. That really, it ruined my day to get something like that. Just one, just one message like that would ruin my day. Staggering to imagine, isn't it? People have a think before you press send uh, on the keyboard. You touched on live there and you wrote another piece. Was it yesterday or today about Graham McDowell? Had a very, very extensive interview talking about tenures. Tell us about what in that piece you picked out and what you posted on social media, which I thought was interesting for a whole bunch of reasons, which we'll go into. So that was actually a piece that was written, well, it was by The Independent and it was just like a transcript um, of an interview they'd done with him. And I just picked out some bits that I thought was interesting. But I mean, the first one was where he was like, I can't comment on the Saudi regime. Like, I don't know enough about it. And you think, how much money have they just pumped your way? Like, you think before you sign up for that, like, you would do some research or at least have something to comment on it. Like, there's no way he doesn't know enough about it. He's just trying to either play that off or, like, make us look like we're a bit stupid. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's almost like he was more upset about being linked to that than actually thinking about the consequences of, like, what actually happens in Saudi. And then the second one was about the links being tenuous at best to their bad uh, human rights, which was an interesting way to describe it. I'm not sure we both have the same meaning of tenuous, but yeah. I'm sure he's treated quite well. Uh, no, not not recently. A little <laughs> bit like your own experience, Hannah. He's been getting death threats and no by the Saudi, Saudi regime. By the Saudi, yeah. But <laughs> I'm just saying, which is interesting because <laughs> you can't condone that. That does that's not okay to send Graham McDowell a message that says "I wish you were dead." That's that's uncool. Mm-hmm. But and this is where it gets tricky. It's also not cool to say I don't know anything about the Saudi regime. I'm just here. 
to play golf. That's a that's a stretch in the other direction, which is trying to sort of you know you, you're trying to get off it completely. How would you have, how do you reckon the players should deal with that? What's your take on Live? I'm going to guess that you're not a big fan of the notion of the Live Tour, but how should the players deal with those questions that they have been dodging now for months? So yeah, first up, not a big fan of Live. Don't like where the money's coming from for the biggest point against it. And also I think just personally being a woman and the fact that their women rights are so bad as well makes it kind of doubly worse. But then I think if you're taking that money, one, you should have done some well-researched like and have some information on what's actually happening there. And you shouldn't be kind of denying that bad things are happening there when they are. And I think the biggest thing is like just people being honest about why they've gone. Um, you know, people like McDowell have clearly just done it for the money. But I think it's also, it leaves a bad taste because there's no one really who's gone to that tour who needs that money. No. Like they're, they're all made well enough money um, to live off. So it's almost like that double standards thing where I know I've said this before with Aramco and like no one talks about the women taking the money, but literally they have no choice. Like it's like that or we don't play professional golf because I I mean, some of them are making like 25,000 before you've even paid any expenses. So I, I just, I find the whole thing very hard to deal with really. So I wrote about this last week, the Aramco Susan. I think the biggest issue there isn't so much. I, mean, I, I think you'd say the same things about Saudi Arabia pumping money into women's golf as men's golf. Is that the source of the money is questionable. I don't think that people are sort of saying, oh, well, the women don't pay for as much money, so that's okay, because some of the women playing in those events are doing very nicely very much. <laughs> Thank you mm-hmm. very much. The quarter sisters have signed up today to play in the next Aramco event. They're both doing okay in terms of finance. I think it's actually an issue. It would be encouraging if there was a bit more scrutiny of the women, because it would mean that, a little bit like you said before, we were watching. Mm-hmm. People were taking an interest. I think people just, in the same way that they just don't cover women's golf tournament play, they don't cover these issues in women's government. Those women taking that money should be held to the same account, should be getting asked the same questions. But they're not because there's no one there to ask the questions or write about it. The coverage is so much less. I think that's more the issue. Uh, and it's, of course, it provides... Everyone just lets it slide because they don't... Well, it's women's it's golf. It's not... an interesting topic. It's not big on it. Can that change, Hannah? How do we change it? We know that in South Korea... I, I wish we were. I wish. I promised I wasn't going to do this. We're talking to you because you're a woman about lots of women's issues, which is ridiculous. You're also an extremely <laughs> good golf writer, etc. But ha- we know that in South Korea, women's golf is huge, bigger than men's golf, in mm-hmm. fact, according to all reports. How do we get to that nirvana or to something approaching it in, let's call it, the Western world? It's the big debate, isn't it? No one really knows. I personally believe it starts at the top and it starts with showing people role models because it's just my thing. I just think if you can't see it, you can't be it. And there's a serious amount of perception to change from parents and kids thinking like this is something that I can do seriously. I mean, in Korea, I mean, my coach has um, some people he's worked with in the past who coach out there and the kids are just in there at like 12 trying to be LPGA tour players. They're not trying to do anything else. And that is like a physical perception thing from 
parents, coaches, kids. It's just a completely different thing. And until people take women's sports seriously, want to write about it and it is bigger, people are just not going to think like that as as parents and children. And they're just not going to train people to be that level of professional. I mean, to be a professional golfer is like a, a serious undertaking and a lot of practice and money and development goes into it. It's not something you can do lightly or just happen to fall into. So until people see like it's worth that investment, I just don't think a lot of people are going to do it. In an age of uh, almost limitless space in terms of coverage, like it's interesting to see that we still don't see the coverage. Don't you? There was a time when a, a physical golf magazine has a certain number of pages and a certain amount of space, and somebody has to make a decision about what fills that space. And there's all sorts of things going on. There's some ethical concerns, mostly commercially driven, what attracts the most coverage. We don't live in that age anymore. And if you'd asked me 25 years ago, well, if we had limitless space, would we have better coverage of some of the what are currently the smaller sections? Well, they would have said, of course, when you've got limited space, you can do all sorts of stuff. But we don't see it, do we? So mm. the problem's not. It's really the sleeping giant of golf, isn't it? Um, and I, th- I think what the Koreans show us, that, that Korean tour shows us, is that if you do give it the attention, it can flourish. And, um, and that applies to equipment. Uh, like you just go through every department in a magazine, equipment, travel, um, professional golf, memberships at clubs, at club level. The, the whole thing can be like pulled up by the professional game. And that, that's, the, that's really the role that the professional game should be serving is to be the public face of golf, uh, to bring more people into it. And, uh, uh, yeah, there, there is this sort of massive untapped potential there. It's and this is this has always interested me, Hannah. Usually, somebody will smell money and say, "Well, there's something, there's an opportunity to be had there." And I think Logue's right. There's this huge untapped market. What's the business case for ignoring women's golf the way we yeah, seem to? That's bad business. Well, if you look at the RNA kind of women in golf charter, a lot of that is about educating people that you're missing out on a massive amount of business because there are so many women who are not playing golf. And if you tap into that market, there's so much business opportunity, which I get and I agree with, and it's totally true. But I also kind of hate it. Like if you read through the women's in golf chart, most of it is about like the advice stuff they give to golf clubs. Most of it is about how women can help you make more money rather than being about, we should be more inclusive to women. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a bit, how do we double-sided. how do we motivate them to achieve the outcome we want? Yeah, how do we get them to spend money? Yeah. yeah, but not in any other way impact this cozy arrangement that we've yeah. been enjoying for the last hundred and fifty or 200, 200, uh, 200 sort of years. I want to take you to. I mentioned this at the very start, Hannah. I want to take you to public golf. What was your own start in golf? This is one that we talk about a lot here. We've got a fair few courses in urban areas in Australia under threat. Public access golf courses. Part of what afflicts women's golf is an image issue. It also afflicts golf more generally. Ask a non-golfer and their notion of golf is generally something that looks like Augusta National and is played on by something that looks like Donald Trump, which is can all be found. All of those things exist in golf. did a horrifying <laughs> I think three of us just thought about getting <laughs> yes. up the game. Perhaps. So there's an image problem with golf. What's the public access golf situation like in the UK? Are there similar sorts of pressures there? We see, saw some stories out of Scotland last year that suggested that might have been the case. And more broadly, what can or should golf be doing about its image? Given that one of the problems it's got we've already talked about, which is the not welcoming of women, which has not done much for its image. 
to be honest, <laughs> more broadly either. So I'm probably a bad example because I literally my whole family play on both sides. So I've been a member of a golf club, albeit like quite a small nine-hole golf club since I was about seven when I joined. Um, around me, there is a decent mix of um, private clubs and kind of pay and play, but golf is so popular at the moment like it's so hard to get on anywhere i mean my golf club has 800 members now and trying to get a tea time sometimes is like just ridiculously hard um but i would say like within five minutes drive of my house there's three pay and play courses which isn't that bad but really i think getting more people into the game is about more short form types of golf i mean if you go to somewhere like Top Golf, you see the most diverse amount of people having a go there. Like you see big groups of women going, loads of young people, and the people you see there just don't translate to what you see on the golf course at all. But it feels like there needs to be some sort of middle ground. I really think like short par three courses and things like that are the future of what would drive people into getting involved because. One, it doesn't take as long, and two, it's easier. Like it is very overwhelming as someone who doesn't play golf to go to a golf course and try play. Like I remember when I was like young and you'd be having like 15s on holes, which is like kind of acceptable when you're a kid. But then as soon as you're an adult, like someone just expects you to be good, even if you're new to the game. So like there needs to be some sort of area where people can like learn to play golf without having the pressure of like well there's a three ball of members behind us like how how do i have to run around the golf course yeah yeah we're so quick to make it really formal as well aren't we like i I look at some examples of that in australia we've got royal melbourne right next to a tremendous public golf course with sandy sandy links formerly sandringham golf club and that should be the perfect combination you've got a really great sand build experience for the general public on Sandy Links, but the, and and it's enormously popular. Um, but because of that popularity, you turn up there and it's exactly like club golf, which which is pretty intimidating for beginners. Um, like they go along and it's really strict tee times, and you've got to keep moving, and it's all going off in four balls, and it's um it's very regimented. Um, there, there isn't that sort of casual just have a hit and have fun sort of feel about it. That's that's a very light, lightweight criticism of Sandy Links, which is an amazing place. But um, I, I think of places like um, Barwon Heads down in the Bellarine Peninsula, which has a little nine-hole mm. short course. Where, where I've seen that in Europe, like I've spent a fair bit of time in Denmark, for example, Almost every golf course in Denmark has the big course and it has a little nine-hole pay-to-play uh, course. And the the atmosphere and the mood on the pay-to-play courses is extremely casual. Like, there's no dress rules. You don't have to have passed any exams. To play on the big course, you actually have to yeah, pass a little exam. Yeah, exams in the Nordic <laughs> countries. It's a yeah. fabulous idea, like a golf license. Um, but the pay-to-play Things are incredible. Like they really lean into it being a casual, simple experience, and there's no pressure, and you can. But they're actually usually architected and built at the same time as the big course. So architected. Uh, I'm not just uh, going to let that go. I'm sorry. Designed. You've been an architect. Know. Is that a word? Architect. <laughs> when was the last time you architected? <laughs> um, 
I'm going to push right through. That. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't. <laughs> if I'd said that, I'd take it out, but I'm not taking it out. Um, you said it. So they, uh, you know, they they have that sort of really um, low pressure entry to the game. I can't think of a single example of it in Australia mm. where it's that casual. Um, Does Top Golf fill that role? Is that what Top Golf achieves in not some really ways? the same thing? I don't think it is either. I've got some issues. No, it's not. It's not the same thing. It's. I mean, I think it's good because it gives someone a little bit of an entry into golf where they might think, oh, this is good, but um, it's not. It's literally just hitting on a driving range, so it's definitely not the same. I think what you touched on there about it being casual and, like, I think people have this big thing about dress codes, don't they? Like, it's traditional and mm-hmm. it's sport and this is what golf is, but I just think, like, dress codes are such a big thing that puts people off. Like, no one's going to spend that much money when they don't play golf on golf attire to go see if they like golf. Like I don't understand the issue of someone rocking up in a tracksuit and a tracky, no tracky bottoms, a hoodie and trainers. Like if you want to wear golf clothes, wear golf clothes. Why does it make any difference to you? If someone in the group in front of you is wearing trainers, which most golf clubs, golf shoes look like trainers now anyway, and a hoodie, like it is literally not going to affect my day what anyone else is wearing on the golf course. And it's the bizarrest thing. If if something as little as that would help people feel comfortable coming and trying a new sport out, why would we not be open to like being more relaxed in that? I reckon we've got maybe one or two listeners who'd be gagging at the thought of people wearing track pants on the golf course. But I think most of our listeners would be open to it. There's a there's a, a professional down here called Sandy Jamison, Hannah, who's got a fabulous program called One Club. But his take on the dress regulations is fantastic. He says, if you want to see how stupid golf dress regulations are, go and sit outside Chadston Shopping Centre in Melbourne, which is a, virtually its own city. It's this massive metropolitan shopping centre. And tell all the people who aren't dressed well enough for golf that they're not allowed to go in. See what sort of response you get, yeah. and how many people actually get to go past and go in the front door. And it's when you think about it that way, it's extraordinary how many people you exclude just on the basis of a piece of cloth on the top of a shirt. I, sh- I should have mentioned I, I said I can't think of any examples in Australia, but Oakley, where Sandy is, is a great example. It's not a big course, little course. Also, Sea View, yeah, Sea View Golf Club in in, uh, in Perth. What I'll say about that though is it's like Sandy's running like a like a pirate radio station there or something. Like it's he's doing that within the framework of a club. Mm-hmm. He's just sort of getting away with. He's sneaking it in there, and the but even a, a place like Oakley still has that intimidation factor where it's got you know it's got a little it's got a driveway and it's got a clubhouse and it just it all looks intim. It's got all the trimmings of a golf that's club. true but isn't that in some ways that's a bit of a part of golf i'm sure the two of you feel this sometimes too you go to some golf courses generally to cover a tournament very rarely to play where you even as a lifelong golfer feel somewhat intimidated mm-hmm. oh i don't want to do the wrong thing here which is a similar thing but isn't there some of that that's kind of a part of an appeal of golf there's a yeah. there's an aspirational element to be to be coming, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm saying I think that's a part of golf. In the same way that's that easy to golf, say once you've done it a couple of times, no doubt. But top golf is a part of golf experience. Hitting a golf ball, yeah. it's a very small piece of the puzzle. To sort of suggest, and I know golf Australia's slogan at the moment is "All golf is golf," and I get that, but it's not, is it? Hitting a ball, Hannah, is such a small part of the golf experience and being a golfer, isn't it? Really, whether you do it well or badly. It's 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 about so much more than just hitting any one given shot with a golf club. And that's where I think for people like us, perhaps, it's different. But golf, to me, grabs people in a way that other sports and recreations don't. It, 
Well, I, c- I like to compare it to ten pin bowling or something where seriously, it's incredibly, yeah, <laughs> where it's incredibly obvious what you need to do when you turn up, even right. if you've got no idea what's going on. Like you, there's, it's all well signposted, and there's it, there's even this complex transaction where you've got to put some shoes on and everything, but. Unless you have spikes in them. Everybody works it out at 10-pit bowling. It's incredibly easy. You know, I can never get the shoes to fit me. No. And in fact, my, me my thumb doesn't fit in, <laughs> yeah. fit in the hole. I missed out. Ice skating yeah. too when I was a kid. I couldn't get the skates with the double no. skates because my feet were too big. So I missed out on ice but skating. Those are just activities that were <laughs> complete, you're completely excluded from. <laughs> no piano, no music, <laughs> that sort of stuff. So what is it that grabs people about golf then, do you reckon, Hannah? And I, I think we probably all know lots of people who think somewhat like us. Love the game dislikes so much of the stuff around it that we've all grown up with and accept is part of the game but don't like it. I think my view on this is, like, rapidly changing over time. Like, even though I'm still quite young, like, I've had that stage where I was like, no, like, golf's golf. Like, I like wearing golf clothes. We look smart. Like, I recognise we're golfers. Like, why does this need to change? And then working in the media, you realise more and more, like, how many people are not getting into golf because of like stupid little things like why do we need a long driver? Why do we need so many? You know, you have to wear this shoes here. You've got, you can't change your golf shoes in the car park. Like all these silly things, like they don't make golf golf. Like all that stuff that happens doesn't change when you get on the first tee and then you go play golf. Like it, and for me, even it's like, like I'm a good golfer and I've, played a lot of golf and I hate going to stuck up clubs like that. Like it's not a comfortable experience when you arrive. So for me, who's played golf for 20 years and I know I'm a good golfer and I know I can compete with anyone who's at that club. If I don't feel comfortable walking into that environment, how can you expect anyone who is not a golfer or is a beginner to feel comfortable there? Like it's just ridiculous. And I just don't think golf needs these pretenses. The fact is, you know, golf's known for being for middle-class, you know, people. It's an expensive sport. It just has so many stigmas. And I think a lot of them need to go for it to change. Many of them are actually untrue, which is the biggest and most frustrating part. If you go down to Oakley or if you follow Sandy on Twitter, and I'd recommend everybody does uh, at Jemo Golf, I think it is. I'll put it in the show notes like oh, you can good. look up okay. for me. Follow Sandy's feed. Every day he posts a picture of somebody who's playing at Oakley and a little bit of their backstory. And it doesn't look anything like what a non-golfer would think golf looks like. Loads of second-hand clubs. Lo- He's had people turn up there with um, – didn't you have somebody there with a furniture removalist trolley one day with the bag strapped to it? I uh, like had a shopping bag. There like was one with a sh- shopping bag. Plastic with, shopping bag. With, like glove and your wallet. Just and, put your wallet in the plastic shopping bag and, yeah. It was and enjoying, yeah. enjoying their golf. Yeah. All that's the business of golf, isn't it, Hannah? Which in so many ways interferes with and makes the game unpalatable. But it's all about business. All of those things, including the notion of exclusion, is about creating something of more value for somebody to extract more dollars out of. How do we have – this is an impossible question, unfair of me to ask. That's why I'll ask it of you rather than try to answer it myself. How how do we have a golf business that actually promotes the game more broadly for the good of the game? The industry so often feels like it works against the interests of the game, I think. Yeah, that's a tough question. (laughs) That's why I sent it over. Golf golf succeeds in spite of itself. On the – Uh, People have to think about the broader thing. Like if we are more inclusive and we bring more people in, like that brings more revenue in on the back of that. Like if we have 
just to make it simplistic, if we have a hundred golfers now, like if you have a thousand, you can sell more products to them, but you're not going to get those extra people because certain people have fixed views of golf. And if that doesn't change, then they're not going to get involved. And it's simple as that. So you even need to have places where they can be introduced to golf, you know, accidentally and just be fallen into it. So, you know, more recreational places, you know, par free courses, things like that. Um, or you need to have it more widely accessible so it's cheaper so people actually feel like they can try it. And you also need to have it where it seems fun. Like even all this stuff on Twitter, like imagine as a non-golfer now looking at all this oh, live God. golf and just thinking like, what is going on? Like I can't believe like a major or something didn't just stamp that out as soon as it came because if the masses or someone had popped up or the RNA and said, you're not playing in the majors, I feel like the story would have, ended a lot quicker and it would have been a lot different it's almost like like we have this big negative thing that's pushing even more that golf is just about money and just for like that level of person and we have all these organizations that say this are supporting golf and inclusion but they haven't said anything or stamped out that matter at all which i find perplexing i was trying to imagine what an office job might be like where it was the same theme like it's just there for this big money grab and it'd be like imagine walking into an office where every cubicle is one of those game show booths with the money just flying up and you yeah. and your job is just to go into the booth and grab as much money as you can and then you like you take a lunch break you go out it'd be tiring and then but then you just like oh, i'm going back in i'm going back into the booth and you grab more money and the end of, you'd be tired at the um, end of the day but that's that's what it kind of looks to me like on the coverage. It's just like I've said oh, this before. All this money, we all this money. Pushing I've said this before, Logan. I'm going to say it again. You're weird, but I like it. <laughs> it's uh, it's an interesting. Way. It'd be a great job. Interesting way, way but to it, look there's at a things. zero sum sort of feel about it. Yes, there's no point to it. Yeah, there's no apart point. from the money. I can't find. I find the whole thing, live thing, interesting for all sorts of reasons. Not the least of them being the soap opera nature of it. Let's be oh, honest. Who's, that, that's not, who's not enjoying, enjoying the, yeah. the slap downs from yeah. various players and all those? Genuine sorts of intrigue and interest. Proper in right, like yeah. what what other sports have week in and week out. I mean, they talk about Premier League football all week in the UK, not because there's a game every day, but because there's stuff around the players. It's the soap opera that goes around. Golf has a lot less of that, generally speaking. But I can't find the point to it. Live golf. It, yeah, it's a zero there, sum. There's no other point to the thing. for all of their faults. There's no other point to the PGA Tour or the European Tour other than golf. It's like now, a joyous celebration of greed or something at the moment. Uh, mm. That's it. That's <laughs> that's changing. I think. What, what do you think, Hannah? Like uh, we've seen two tournaments now. It's feeling like it's getting it, normalised. Come on, say it publicly. What you, what you said to me when you walked in? What did I say? They've won. I think they have. Yeah, I think they've won. You might be right. It, because mo I think the most punters just look at it and go, oh, I don't, don't know where the money's come from, but oh, it's something different that looks looks good. So many nuances to it. it, it nothing's ever as simple or as black and white as we think, which is which is where you get a lot of the whataboutism and it's where Huggins' line is so good. I'm not sure where the line is, but I know that that's on the other side of it. It's a, it's a bit of a cop-out, but it's sort of true. You, you might be wrong. not really sure what they're trying to achieve with it. No. You know, when it first came out, it was like, oh, this is going to be a rival league. But then it's shotgun star. They've limited themselves to a 48-player field. Well, there's plenty of people topping up the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour. Like, 48 players are not going to be missed. It's not going to compete. 
for me, like I love watching golf. I watch literally anything that's on. I didn't watch a single shot of the second live tournament. I only saw the first one because it happened to be on in the office when I was in. Like, so if I'm someone who's like obsessed with golf and's not watching it, like who actually <laughs> is? Um, I just don't see where it goes. I'm with you. Um, I can't and I don't see, see it what it does. Like there's history behind the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour and people are trying to, you know, catch Jack or Tiger or there's like to when everyone wins a tournament, there's something to compare it to and to understand that there's nothing of that with Liv. Um, yeah. I agree. I mean, of course, all of those tournaments started as nothing as well at some point. <laughs> those things, they weren't always thus. It was created. Matt Fitzpatrick winning the US Open kind of made the point so beautifully without it needing to be enunciated, didn't it? You could see the meaning of that event. The little bits I've seen of the two live tournaments have not had that, nor in fairness do most of the week-to-week events on the PGA Tour or the European Tour. Most of them are. It is a series. Of, it's a part of the mistake, probably, that golf professional golfers made is it's become a travelling circus. There's too much of it. Mm-hmm. It's too samey. Yep. This notion of you know golf but louder. Well, I couldn't see anything different about live golf. It was blokes playing so golf, tipping beers off the balcony. Well, that was the commissioner was tipping beers off the balcony. Uh, I think the problem we're going to have that, is you know? there is going to be more. Um, more top players go across to it. I don't I think, think there's any inevitable. doubt about that. Well, where do the next top players come from, though? We've got a pool of top players who are top players for a reason. Once it's once they've got an established, uh, you know, forty-eight players, the, the, there's a lot of placeholder players there at the moment. They'll gradually push those out. I think by the end of this year, probably they'll have forty-eight looks like pretty players. strong yeah. fields, yeah. and then. That you're going to have that on TV alongside the other tours on TV, including LPGA, which um, might might lose you know loses out of this as well. Um, and uh, people are going to watch that one. Uh, it finishes on Saturday, which is good, I think, because then you can still watch there's the other of, stuff that finishes of, on Sunday. There's a lot so of entertainment cases you can make about it, but is, yeah. is ultimately is is golf a television entertainment product for anybody but golfers? Do you know any non-golfers who watch golf on TV, Hannah? Ever? Not outside the majors. Yeah, exactly. I know someone will watch the Masters in the Open, yeah, but yeah. other yeah. than that, no. In the same way people might watch the Kentucky Derby, even though they've got no interest in horses or the Melbourne Cup down here. or you, 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 Wimbledon's a classic example. There's been more people watching tennis this last couple mm. of weeks than every other week of I the year. I find Greco-Roman wrestling fascinating once There's every four years. No question that that's, you would. <laughs> we all know that, though, from the diving, don't we, and the gymnastics. Yeah. And we all turn into the experts and you tune in and you get right yeah. in. Same happened with the long drive. Remember when Bryson went off to the long drive? Mm-hmm. The long drive people told us this is the future of golf. Well, there'll be no more golf. It's just going to all long run. Briefly interesting. The following week, it was uh, it was sort of gone. So I agree with you. But but they've got so much money to make an enormous splash. And can they hang around long enough to become interesting? Are they going to be interested enough to hang around long enough? Golf is not the purpose of it. And that ultimately, I think, I just can't see how you can build something on no foundation. Yeah. yeah the mean, purpose is not golf. No, it's celebrating greed. That's right. So, that's, that's his purpose. You should try and you should try and pitch that to them as a you know, instead of golf but louder, celebrating greed. So yeah. they'll get that. <laughs> or have the, or have joyous greed. 
There's a joy. <laughs> There's a joy to have it. Their logo room. could be one of those tubes yeah. with the money. Yeah, the tube <laughs> with the money. <laughs> you get it. Just have Malcolm, uh, not Malcolm, Graham McDowell go in and you're a, start. <laughs> you're a wasted talent, Logan. So, <laughs> anyways, let's talk about actual golf. Next two weeks, you're going to see the Scottish Open, which has got a field that's just extraordinary this year now that it's co-sanctioned with the PGA Tour. What a positive that would have been two years ago <laughs> if it had happened without the shadow of all of this hanging over it. And then the Open at the old course, Hannah. Are you going to either? And what's been your experience with some of that amazing golf in Scotland? Obviously, you're based in the UK, but in England, have you been to the old course and played there? And what's your take on what's going on? It should be, every five years, golf's most joyous celebration when the Open comes to the old course. You feel like perhaps this year it's going to be a little bit tainted. So my backstory with the old course is my parents actually met at the Open at St Andrews. Oh, nice. (laughs) Um, Which one? So, uh, 1990. Nice. And I have Auto been Vigil. there a lot. Um, I'm also going next week, which is very exciting. So, I'm traveling up on uh, Sunday and I'll be there all week. My sister went to university there. So, played a lot of golf in St. Andrews. Um, it's just, I love Lynx golf. And St. Andrews is just, it, it is the best place in the world. I mean, if I can go somewhere and it's acceptable to wander around the supermarket with my golf clubs on my back, then that is, I think I need to live there. <laughs> my my favourite thing, I went to St Andrews once, back in 97, my favourite thing that happened was we were drinking at uh, one of the bars across the I think it was called McSorley's at the time, I'm not sure what it's called now, and the barmaid broke a glass uh, behind the bar, cut her finger, and she went out the back and put some electrical tape on it and came back and kept serving the beers. And I sort of said to her, well, what, no band-aids or stuff? Anyway, as the conversation went on, she played a four <laughs> because she did sit down. Of course she does. Yeah. You know, the guy who serves your coffee is a scratch marker. And, yeah. like, and he plays off 20, but he's been playing for his whole life. It's the most amazing golf place, isn't it, in all the ways that have got nothing to do with just being on the course. It's an extraordinary uh, – this will be your first open at the old course, I assume. Uh, my first – open at the old course actually covering golf yeah but um i've been to pretty much most of them there wow it's a it's a really special place very very jealous yeah would love to be there i'm really we're we're having a a little uh get together at uh, at a pub here for the oh yes i saw the friday night (laughs) for us it's on at night time it's quite interesting actually because i've been up three times to snandra's already this year and Every time I've been up, like they've been building for the open, like they must have started four months ago, and they've had contractors there like twenty four seven. Like the amount of infrastructure, I don't think you realize when you just go to a tournament where you know you've not been there many times, and everything's just up. You don't realize how long it actually takes to put everything up, like the grandstands, like the spectators' village. It's been going on for so long, mm. but it's quite interesting to see where they've put some of the tees as well, like because. The old course is surrounded by other golf courses. They have dragged quite a lot of tees back onto surrounding courses for this year. So say like the 14th, I think that's playing like 650 now, the par five with Hell's Bunker on it. Wow. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see um, how different it plays because of that. The tees, it's back on the Eden course there, isn't it? The, what's how you yeah. say? It's on five different, five golf, different courses. golf courses. Five different golf courses, yeah. They're, they're playing the open across five different golf courses at the moment. Take great delight in saying that. The second, second tee's on the Himalayas, the Himalayas I think. Yeah. That's, yeah. 
It's extraordinary. Um, on that, the infrastructure thing, one of my favourite things Clates has ever said, and he said 1,000, I don't know whether you know Mike Clayton, he's a golf pro down here, fabulous, fabulous. He said, the saddest place in the world is a golf course on a Monday after a tournament. How quickly all of that stuff just comes down and is mm. gone. You turn up on Tuesday morning, it's like nothing ever happened. There's all just marks on the grass where the, the pads used to be. But I've been at a couple of tours mm. on a Monday after a tournament. It really is quite sad to see it all being taken apart. It's like this huge build-up. And it's all gone. Done. The, the open setup's always really special for that stadium sort of effect at they the create 18th, on the 18th, although it's a little bit different setup at St Andrews, obviously. It's tough there, isn't it, St Andrews? Yeah. It's, it's probably the worst open viewing course of all. You, there's very little of the action you can sort of get out and see because of the nature of where the, the way the course it goes is. out and back on a loop. You're kind of always outside the golf course. Any viewing tips, Hannah, for people going? There's, what, what's your favourite spot? Uh, so I actually really like if you go to the like back of the 11th screen, which is the par three, yep. you can see people shooting into there, but you can also stand right next to the 12 tee and watch everyone hitting down. So you get that experience of being really close to the players hitting off the tee, but also seeing some of the action. I mean, that corner is just good because you can see, you can see lots seven. of holes going That's around one. and they've put a lot more grandstands up there this year. Okay, um, So there'll, there'll be more for people to watch around there as well. Looks like the the little hook of where the old course sort of hooks around. Uh, I think I, it, I always have that always gets into my mind and muddles up into a ball of rubber yeah. bands that I can't make it. Well, it's tail. kind of behind the eleventh tee. Yes, is where it's one of the holes from the new is there. I think, but it's um, that that little crook of the the it's way the loop isn't it? it's called the loop. Well, yeah, but the inner part of the the inner loop the hook that it right. forms i think is a nice sort of central point you're right next to the 10th and see the 11th and the 7th is there as well so uh anyway that's it's great uh you know watching the country club the other week we didn't we didn't talk about after the u.s open but when all of that tournament infrastructure is put down on one of those U.S. Open courses, it normally looks terrible. Yes. Like, it makes every single U.S. <laughs> open course look exactly the yeah. same, but it didn't happen at the Country Club. No. The Country Club looked fantastic. Spectacular, wasn't it? Yeah. It really Absolutely spectacular. spectacular. I can't wait to see what St Andrews looks like or how, how the whole course is presented um, for the TV. It, but sometimes it can look really flat. Yeah. It just, it I mean, we, we know it's got a lot of movement on the land, but it can look really flat sometimes. It is what you would show a non-golfer if you wanted to advertise golf to them, though, is it not? The old course? I mean that quite seriously. I love the old course. Yeah. I think it's great. I mean, in your talk about slope, there is some serious amount of slope, especially on the greens. I don't think people realise you – I guess people talk about that course being short, but there are some places where you can be near the green after your drive and you just have no shot to the yeah. pin. Like Some of them are so hard, especially when they start playing downwind and you can't stop the ball quickly. Like it is very tricky. Like I've I played there in a tournament last year and like I was six under through twelve and I still finished two under. Like the back nine was so downwind. The pins were on these tiny little ledges. And even if you were driving it near the green, like you just could not stop the ball. It is mad. So I think there's definitely that level of people think it's a bit easier than it is. Obviously the pros are very good. They can spin it more. Um but yeah, there's a lot of places that can catch you out, even though it's uh, probably one of the easier costs on the open rotor. It reminds me of Royal Melbourne in that way, in, in that I reckon you see more double and triple bogeys at the old course in Royal Melbourne that you do at other more difficult golf yeah. courses, quote unquote. There are spots that you can hit it on those two courses that are diabolical. 
if you hit it over the back of the <laughs> sixth green on Royal Melbourne West, it doesn't matter who you are. Unless the ball goes in the hole, it's going off the front of the green. It's a diabolical place to miss. Yeah. And you don't see that that often, I don't think. Like really, Augusta's got a touch of that as well. There's places that are just – getting down in three from here for a tour pro would be a very good effort. You'd be happy enough with that, and that's pretty rare, I, I think. I think some of the interests for watching tour pros and, and you know, for a good golfer like you, Hannah, is that you they just go for the wedge straight away mm. in all of those situations. And so it becomes like, can I spin it to get it to stop where I want it to go? You just so rarely see them play – Little run-up shots and we saw things, which, or, or you know, Martin Keimer like putting for, 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 for different <laughs> reasons. But um, I don't know whether you remember the 2008 Open at um, the one that Harrington won. Was it, wasn't, was it Birkdale where Norman led into the last round? The first couple of days it was so windy it was out of control, and I never forget watching Norman for all his current faults hit a five iron from 130 yards to about 10 feet. Mm. It's the most amazing thing I've seen. Yeah. You, you just can't imagine Xander Shoffle ever considering that as a shot. Yeah. Or, and that's not a criticism of Xander. There's other things to criticise him for. But Or Dustin Johnson or Ricky Fowler or Rory. You just can't imagine them reaching for a five-iron from 130 yards. Interestingly, I reckon you could see Tiger doing it. Yeah. Norman was a great yeah, team, maybe. maker. Who's that? JT. JT. Yeah, yeah. well, hasn't JT. he proved himself to be a golfer's golfer in terms of playing the game? Uh, extraordinary talent and amazing, uh, amazing to watch. So you'll get to see all of those next week. Hannah, we'll let you go because we've kept you longer than I meant to. It's been fabulous to have a chat to you. We've wanted to get you on the show for quite a while. Apart from any other reason is because there's just not enough women in golf media. There just simply isn't enough. Um, I know. it's uh, It is changing and there is more in media, but it's more about us having the opportunity to write about yeah. women as well. Yeah. So... Indeed. So you write for National Club Golfer. You've, I know you've got a microphone there. Do you do some podcasting or something as well? What else do you do? And where can people find you if they're interested in following along to be nice? Be nice, people. Identify yourself <laughs> as good, good listeners and be nice. Yeah, I'm Hannah Holden MCG on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find links to podcasts, YouTube channel, and the work I do um, in my uh, link in my bio on there. So, yeah, a lot of YouTube, um, a lot of articles and some podcasts as well. So lots of stuff about clubs, I think, is clubs and club testing, yeah? Equipment, gear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah a lot of club testing. Filling the, <laughs> filling the gap that we leave, Logue, because we don't do any of that No stuff idea at, at all. all. <laughs> Hopeless. Uh, anything else from you, Logue? You have a better climate than me probably for club testing as well. Well, not just Half at the moment. When it's zero degrees and I'm outside doing that, I don't think it's uh, – the best thing. <laughs> Not just now. We're in the middle of Armageddon again. Yeah, another it's, massive we're flooding and oh, it's quote unquote rain event. Yeah, it's a rain event. Yeah. Uh, have I missed anything, Logue? Do you want to ask? Uh, no, no, that's right. no. Happy on that. No, thank you very much. I think we'll call it a day. Yep. Episode 112 of the Good Good Golf Podcast in the books. Back mm, maybe next. Yes, we are back next week. Talk to BJ. Yes, from St Andrews here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.